If you would, take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Hebrews, chapter number one. Hebrews, chapter number one. Several weeks ago, a few months ago now, a couple of months or so or more ago, I did the terrible thing of starting a series and then pausing immediately after and starting another one. And uh, you've been gracious with me in that, but several have asked, when does Hebrews start again? And so here we are. And we titled that series when we began a couple of months ago, Jesus is Better. And the good news I have for you this morning is that Jesus is still better. And now uh, we get to look at the next section in the book of Hebrews. Back when we began, we began by looking at verses 1 through 4 of chapter 4 first, which demonstrates for us that Jesus is a better revelation of God than the Old Testament. Now again, we're not saying that the Old Testament is bad, nor are we saying that angels, as we'll talk about in this morning's text, are bad. We're simply saying that Jesus is better. The Old Testament is good. In fact, we often study, preach through, talk about, give great concentration on understanding the Old Testament here in your connect groups. There's study and effort at understanding better what's happening in the Old Testament. It is good. There in the Old Testament, you may learn about who God is. God as the creator of the world, as is illustrated in the book of Genesis. God as the redeemer of his people, as is illustrated in the book of Exodus. God as the good and perfect king, as is illustrated in the historical books of the Old Testament. God as judge and just, as is illustrated in the prophets. But nowhere else can you see God for who he is, as you can when you look into the face of his son, Jesus Christ. In fact, the book of Colossians in chapter 1, verse 15 says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Just a few verses later, the Bible says the fullness of the Godhead dwelt bodily in Jesus. All of the characteristic attributes of God the Father came to dwell bodily in the person of his Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus is a better revelation of God than even what we have in the Old Testament. Verse 4 of that passage, as you might remember, reads this way. So he became higher in rank than the angels, just as the name he inherited is superior to theirs. That's a concluding statement for that section and a transition to the topic that we're going to be discussing this morning. Jesus is not only better than the Old Testament, Jesus is better than the angels. Now, if you've ever met someone who was infatuated or fixated on angels and demons and various things of the like and felt that there was just something a tick or two off about that infatuation, this passage will be helpful for you. If you are a person who is inclined toward some manner of spiritualism or angels and demons, this passage will be helpful for you. If you are a person who simply desires to better understand the greatness of Jesus and the nature of his saving work, this passage will be helpful for you. If you found your way there, I want to invite you to turn there and stand with me out of respect and honor for the reading of God's word. Hebrews chapter 1, beginning in verse number 5. 
Here the Bible says, For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have become your father, or again I will be his father and he will be my son? When he again brings his firstborn into the world, he says, And all God's angels must worship him. And about the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his servants a fiery flame. But to the Son, your throne, God, is forever and ever, and the scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of justice. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. This is why God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of joy rather than your companions. And in the beginning, Lord, you established the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like clothing. You'll roll them up like a cloak, and they'll be changed like a robe. But you are the same, and your years will never end. Now to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve those who are going to inherit eternal salvation? We must therefore pay more attention to what we have heard so that we'll not drift away. For if the message spoken through angels was legally binding and every transgression and disobedience received a just punishment, how will we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was first spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him. At the same time, God also testified by signs and wonders, various miracles and distributions of gifts from the Holy Spirit according to his will. For he's not subjected to angels the world to come that we're talking about, but one, who has, but one has somewhere testified, what is man that you remember him or the son of man that you care for him? You made him lower than the angels for a short time. You crowned him with glory and honor and subjected everything under his feet. For in subjecting everything to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. As it is, we don't yet see everything subjected to him, but we do see Jesus made lower than the angels for a short time so that by God's grace he might taste death for everyone, crowned with glory and honor because of his suffering in death. For in bringing many sons to glory, it was entirely appropriate that God, all things exist for him and through him, should make the source of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For the one who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one Father. That's why Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brothers. I will sing hymns to you in the congregation. Again, I will trust in him. And again, here I am with the children God gave me. Now, since the children have flesh and blood in common, Jesus also shared in these so that through his death, he might destroy the one holding the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who were held in slavery all their lives by the fear of death. For it's clear that he doesn't reach out to help angels, but to help Abraham's offspring. Therefore, he had to be like his brothers in every way, so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tested and has suffered, 
He is able to help those who are tested. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word. You may be seated. It is made clear for us here, among other things, that Jesus possesses superiority. That is, he is better. He bears authority over even the angels. Look to verse 5. For to which angel did he ever say, you are my son? Today I've become your father, or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. When he again brings his firstborn into the world, he says, and all God's angels must worship him. Jesus is better than the angels by virtue of who he is. His very title, his very name is better than the angels. He is himself the son of God. And the father has decreed when his firstborn, that is his only begotten son, was born into the world, that the angels themselves must worship the son. And that's precisely how we find a multitude of heavenly hosts praising and worshiping God before those shepherds watching over their flocks by night, singing glory to God in the highest and on earth peace and goodwill toward men. That attending the birth of the firstborn just as described in our passage. In verse 7, the Bible says, And about the angels, he says, He makes his angels winds. That is, they move about with grace. They move about with power. They move about with distinction. They move about beautifully at the direction of God. He makes his angels winds and his servants a fiery flame. There's a certain authority, even a danger. There is a fiery flame about those angels. The name they bear in the Old Testament would suggest that they have the appearance of a fiery flame. Here we have an emphasis being made. The focal point of this verse, this quote is that angels are good. Angels are powerful. There's a greatness about angelic beings. But the point of verses 8 and 9 is that in spite of that greatness, in spite of that power, in spite of that certain danger about angels, Jesus remains to be better. Look to verse 8. He said to angels, they're powerful, they're good, but to the Son, he says, your throne, God, is forever and ever, and the scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of justice. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. This is why God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of joy rather than your companions. Now, not only does this quote from Psalm 45 emphasize the exclusive position of Jesus, that there is none like him. This is why God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of joy rather than your companions. Your anointing Jesus is unique in all the world. We're also emphasizing here, Psalm 45 is teaching here that Jesus is superior to the angels because of his eternal reign, that he is eternal. Now, often when we think about angels, we think about them as eternal beings. And what we intend by that is that their existence does not end. 10,000 years from now, when we're still singing the praise of our God, the angels will be in attendance of that heavenly choir. 
But that is not to say that they are eternal in the same way that Jesus, our Savior, is himself eternal. There was a time, understand, when angels were not. But there was never a time when Jesus was not. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore in him there is no change, no shadow of turning, no variation. He always was. What child has not asked? What a adult once as a child did not themselves ask? Who made God? And yet it's fundamental to who he is. That's typically when we send them to the preacher, right? Go ask the pastor. There was never a time when he was not. This is fundamental to who he is as God. This is part and parcel of what it means to be an eternally existent God. And yet that foundational elementary concept is enough to break our finite brains. We don't have categories for this. And yet Jesus is eternal, superior to the angels, not just by virtue of his title or position, but by virtue of his eternal reign. He is unique in and of himself. Morris said in verse 10, Psalm 102 is quoted here. Here's what it says. In the beginning, Lord, you established the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like clothing. You will roll them up like a cloak, and they'll be changed like a robe, but you are the same, and your years will never end. A quote from Psalm 102, not only emphasizing again the eternality of Jesus, that not only was there never a time when he was, there will never be a time when he is not, but that he is the creator of all things, superior to the angelic beings by virtue of the fact that he himself made the angelic. You know where angels came from? Jesus made them. And by virtue of his creative act, his creative power, he is superior to all things. This is further highlighted by the quote of Psalm 113 in verse number 13. Now to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool? This is a verse that features prominently in the Gospels, a verse that Jesus puts before the Pharisees requiring their explanation, an explanation they could not themselves provide. Sit, sit at my right hand, God says, until I make your enemies your footstool. A promise from God that ultimately the Son, the Messiah, would be given authority over all creation. It's a point of great emphasis in the Gospels, one that we often overlook in the Great Commission that comes at the end of every Gospel narrative where Jesus begins his explanation of the charge for the church in this way. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given unto me. It's not incidental that Jesus includes that as a part of that address. What God had promised in time past has now come to pass in Christ. And now under that authority, we have been charged to go and to make disciples of all nations. Central to that teaching, perhaps even the foundation of that teaching, the motivation, what compels us, what emboldens us, what gives us confidence in our going is the fact that Jesus has commissioned us and Jesus bears all authority both in heaven and on earth. Indeed, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. To what angel has God ever said that? Now, in verse 14, there's a note here that's taken up again later in chapter 2. The question is asked in order to make a point. 
are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve those who are going to inherit salvation? The angels just exist in order to serve or to minister to, to provide or protect over the people of God, those who will inherit salvation. Our position within creation is superior to that of the angels, which is further reason why fixation on what I'll call in a broad way here spiritualism or spiritual things apart from Jesus is a futile fascination. Even our position is superior to the angels. We may not see it now, but we see a foretaste of this in what Jesus has done through his death and resurrection and the reality that he now bears all authority both in heaven and on earth. Understand that your place in the created order is higher in rank than that of angels. Do you realize that when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, when a created being made the decision to defy the command of God and sinned, that that was not the first time that had happened within the created order. It was not unique to humanity. Before the foundation of the world, the Bible describes a scenario in which Satan and his minions in their pride grab for a glory that belongs to God and God alone. And in so doing, they fell from the great favor they enjoyed within that host of angels. But for them, there was no provision of salvation. For them, there was no promise of redemption. And so when Adam and Eve make that fateful decision and all mankind fall in the Garden of Eden, it is an act of sheer grace that God would provide for us the apex of creation, the promise of redemption and forgiveness through Christ and Christ alone. We are altogether undeserving, and yet God has provided the sacrifice of his son for us. This is an experience unique to us as mankind. So much so that Peter says that angels desire to look into, to inquire about this salvation that we enjoy, a salvation unique to humanity. Chapter 2 and verse 1, the Bible says, and this, I think, is the central teaching of this greater section that we read moments ago. We must therefore pay even more attention to what we have heard so that we will not drift away. Pay attention to what you've heard so that you will not drift away. We'll talk more about the idea of drifting away in the weeks to come. There are those who teach that our salvation is somehow unsecure on the basis of the teaching of the book of Hebrews. That could not be further from the truth. In fact, the promise of our eternally secure salvation is highlighted with greater emphasis in the book of Hebrews than any other book in the Bible. The promise here for us is that as we fix our gaze on Jesus, that that focus, the beauty of Christ drawing us in, it, it keeps us. Not only does Jesus have the power to save us, he has the power to keep us. And the call of the book of Hebrews again and again and again is to focus your thoughts, to fix your gaze on Christ. And in that, there is persevering power over the duration of our life. 
The Bible says again, therefore, pay even more attention to what we've heard so that we will not drift away. For if the message spoken through angels was legally binding and every transgression and disobedience received a just punishment, how will we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? This is the idea, right? In times past, God spoke through the angels. He often would deliver a message through the angels. In fact, the word angels means messenger. And there are certain contexts where the same word can be translated as messengers and other contexts where that word is translated as angels. It's determined by context. An angel is essentially a messenger of God. And when the angel delivered the message, that message was legally binding. In other words, if God sent an angel to tell you to do something, you better do it. And failing to do it would bring just judgment or punishment from God. Now, if Jesus is better, superior to the angels, and the word of angels is legally binding and to break the command of angels brings with it a just punishment. How much more should we heed the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, delivered not by a prophet, delivered not by an angel, but by none other than God himself in the flesh, Jesus Christ? God hasn't just sent an angel, although the angels attest to the truthfulness of the gospel. God hasn't just verified the truthfulness of the gospel in miracles, although miracles attest to the truthfulness of the gospel. God hasn't just sent certain gifts that would seem to verify or authenticate the gospel, although those gifts exist. God hasn't merely sent a multitude of angels attending to his people and at work in a variety of different ways. God has sent forth his only begotten son. And how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? The message of these verses is an invitation to hear and to heed the promise of Christ, to come to him, all who are weary and heavy laden, and find your rest in Jesus. Do not neglect, do not neglect such a great salvation. The call, the clarion call of the gospel is to repent of your sin and believe on him. Only Jesus can save you. Only Jesus can save you. A few years ago, about three or four years ago, uh, me and two other pastors taught a seminar on preaching through the book of Hebrews for one of our Baptist colleges. And one of the preachers observed, and I think he was exactly right, that each of these points of reference in the book of Hebrews ha have parallels in our more modern experience. Here's what he meant by that. He compared Jesus' superiority over the Old Testament as described in verses 1 through 3 as having a parallel or compatibility with the experience in many Christian circles of our fascination with information apart from any interest in transformation. Sometimes we can seek to soothe the guilty conscience or to quench the convicting power of God's Holy Spirit by reading the Bible as it pertains to others 
or as it instructs us or provides information historically or even theologically without allowing for that to settle into the soul and have the transforming work that God intends it to have. For instance, there will always be more people at the Bible study than there will be people at the meeting focused on the implementation of what the Bible teaches. There will always be more people show up for the expositional study of the Great Commission than there will ever be people who show up for the evangelism team meeting. That's a way that we often work to soothe the guilty conscience. And there are other reasons as to why it works out that way, but I'm convinced we are quite satisfied often in our holy huddles gaining information without that information ever bearing fruit in our lives. Next week, Lord willing, we'll look at Moses. And the Bible says there that Jesus is better than Moses. And Moses stands as the figurehead of or the representative of the Old Testament law. And in some ways, in the New Testament context, as representative or symbolic of legalism. The idea that we can satisfy the needs of our soul, we can soothe the guilty conscience, we can quench the work of the Spirit by doing certain acts of obedience. And there are those who regard themselves as being faithful, obedient, moral, they have good values, and therefore they're superior in their estimation to other people. And I want you to know this morning that Jesus is better than your false sense of superiority through your moralism. The Bible is teaching that Jesus is not only a better, but the exclusive way of salvation. Your reading the Bible, your gaining or gathering information is not a means of meriting salvation that can only be found in Jesus. I notice in the culture that there's a greater inclination or want to identify oneself as spiritual. Even within Christian context, there's a want to identify as a spiritual person, and often in unchristian or unbelieving context, one who is a spiritual person. Your spirituality cannot save you from your sin. What these texts are teaching us, and it's writ large in every verse of the book of Hebrews, your memorization of the Bible cannot save you. Your Bible studies cannot save you. Your legalistic obedience or moralism cannot save you. Your value system cannot save you. Your party affiliation cannot save you. Your spirituality cannot save you. Angels cannot save you. That feeling that you got at some point in your life cannot save you. The chills up your spine and the hair standing on your neck, that bolt from a blue experience, that warm feeling in your belly, these cannot save you, but Jesus Christ can. That's the teaching of our text. Only Jesus can save. Only Jesus can save. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? The Bible continues in verse 3, it was first spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him, Jesus said it himself. At the same time, God testified by signs and wonders, various miracles, and the distribution of gifts from the Holy Spirit according to his will. God is on record, and the truthfulness of the gospel has been attested to for more than 2,000 years now. Come to Christ. Think this morning objectively about the reasonability of the gospel of Jesus Christ and what God has done for us in the death and the burial and the resurrection of Christ. Come away from the things of this world and entrust your soul to a good and faithful God.
Verse 5, the Bible says, for he hasn't subjected to angels the world to come that we're talking about. This is where it begins to deal with our superiority in the creation over angels, something mentioned verses ago. But one has somewhere testified, that somewhere, by the way, is Psalm 8, 5 through 7. What is man that you remember him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him lower than the angels for a short time. You crowned him with glory and honor and subjected everything under his feet. For in subjecting everything to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. As it is, we don't yet see everything subjected to him. There's coming a day when everything is subjected to us as the people of God, when angels are subjected to our authority. There are no angelic supervisors in heaven saying, go here, go there, do this, do that. They are under our charge, under our dominion. One day the earth will be fully and finally under the dominion of God's creation, under mankind. It's not that way yet. We can't see it. But the text says we've got a means, a foretaste, a bit of an experience, an ability to look into what that's going to be like. We can't see everything as it will be, but verse 9 says we can see Jesus made lower than the angels for a short time so that by God's grace he might taste death for everyone crowned with glory and honor because of his suffering in death. Our experience being made lower than the angels for this time is like unto the experience of Jesus, who in spite of being equal with God would lay aside the glories of heaven, walk among us, share in our experience, being made for a short time lower than the angels, that he might bear with all of the indignity of that earthly life and ministry, that by his death, sacrifice might be made for those who had come to faith in him, that by his death, sacrifice might be made for those who had come to faith in him, that in his humiliation, in his suffering, in his anguish, in the agony of his death, he might be crowned with great glory and honor in the victory of his resurrection. Aren't you glad for what Jesus has done? Jesus, in his humiliation, won our salvation and the exaltation of his name by death and resurrection. This is what Jesus has done for us. Like unto us, he took this position. He, he took this place. He towed the rung on the created order ladder that we now enjoy a little lower than the angels. But this is not the only way that Jesus is like unto us on our behalf for our salvation. Look to verse 10. For in bringing many sons to glory, it was entirely appropriate that God, and then the Bible says sort of in a parentheses here, all things exist for him and through him. Everything exists for God through him, for him, to his praise eternally. It was entirely appropriate that God should make the source of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For the one who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one father. That's why Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brothers. I will sing hymns to you in the congregation. Jesus is perfected as the atoning sacrifice for our sin in his death and resurrection. 
That is to say, he is not only the perfect sacrifice and that he is like unto us. He becomes flesh and blood like unto us. In flesh and blood, Jesus came for us. In flesh and blood, Jesus died for us. In flesh and blood, Jesus is raised from the grave on the third day. In flesh and blood, Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. In flesh and blood, Jesus is like unto us, and therefore in his suffering in flesh and blood is the perfect sacrifice for our flesh and blood. He is therefore not ashamed to call us brothers. This is a remarkable thing. Like unto us in every way, virtually every way, his blood applied, I suppose, like un, uh, unto us in every way except for the position that he enjoys at the right hand of God. In stressing this point, the writer of Hebrews says in verse 12, I will proclaim your name to my brothers. I will sing hymns to you in the congregation. A quote from Psalm 22:22, the same psalm from which Jesus quotes on the cross when he says, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? A psalm that begins in the despair of the Messiah, all that he would experience, walks with the Messiah through the valley of the shadow of death, but ends in great victory as not only the Messiah, but the people of the Messiah enjoy the victory achieved by the only one who could achieve it. In verse 13, the Bible says again, I will trust in him. And again, here I am with the children God gave me. Now listen to these last verses. Now since the children have flesh and blood in common, Jesus also shared in these so that through his death he might destroy the one holding the power of death, that is the devil. Free those who were held in slavery all their lives by the fear of death. For it's clear that he doesn't reach out to help angels, but to help Abraham's offspring. Therefore, he had to be like his brothers in every way, so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God. To make propitiation, that is to satisfy the wrath of God against us for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tested and has suffered, he is able to help those who are tested. Jesus knows all things. Theologically, that's referred to as his omniscience. He knows the end from the beginning. There is nothing that he does not know. The Bible says he knows the very hairs of our head. That's just a metaphorical way of saying he knows everything. But when we go through sin suffering, sickness, sadness, sorrow. It's important that we be reminded that Jesus' knowledge of us is not distant. In other words, what Jesus knows of our hardships and difficulties is not merely the product of his omniscience, the fact that he knows all things. It is in some ways the product of his experience. 
What those last verses are reminding us of is this, that in our suffering, in our sadness, in the difficulties that may come our way, Jesus has walked where we have walked. He is a merciful, understanding, compassionate Savior, and that he has quite literally been where we have been, tested, tempted, and tried, even as we all have. The exception being Jesus perseveres victoriously, without spot or blemish, in absolute righteousness, through all of the suffering and difficulties and challenges and temptations that might come our way. Jesus knows where we are because he has himself been there a bit. Isn't it encouraging to know the nearness of the Savior? The fact that Jesus knows by experience is really quite endearing for me. I, from time to time in, in counseling, and I, I don't regard myself as a good counselor. Someone said I counsel like Bob Newhart, and I had to go look and see what that meant. <laughs> Are y'all familiar with this? The Bob Newhart skit charges five bucks and he just says, stop. Whatever you're, just stop, whatever you're doing. That's my counseling methodology, the Bob Newhart method. Just stop, just quit. Stop sinning, everything will work out. Just stop sinning. But from time to time, when there's a shared experience, well, it's so much easier to be able to speak into that. When there's a background that's similar between me and maybe the person that sought out counseling, and I don't know about you, but I, I find my heart encouraged at the notion that Jesus knows all of the ins and outs of my foolishness and my mistakes and even the ways that I may have been hurt or offended in some time past. What I'm saying to you is this. We have a good, merciful, compassionate, and understanding Savior. He's no wicked taskmaster seeking whom he may destroy, but a good and faithful God who looks upon us with love and mercy and his benevolence has invited us to him. And my invitation to you is to taste and to see that our Lord indeed is good, to come away from the silly and foolish counterfeits that this world is constantly pitching, and to see that what the soul truly needs is found in Christ and in Christ alone. This morning, why don't you make the decision to break with the patterns of this world, to come away from your sin and your stubbornness, and to come to Christ for the grace and the mercy that can only be found in him. Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. Come, come, come. Drink freely from the fountain of the water of life. In just a moment, we're going to have a time of invitation and commitment. And on the back side of that, at the end of that, we're going to share in the Lord's Supper together. And what an appropriate passage to prepare our hearts to partake of the bread and the cup. Let me say a few words about that. For the church, our time of invitation and commitment ought to function when celebrating the Lord's Supper as a moment and opportunity for us to prepare ourselves for the Lord's table by purifying our hearts in prayer and the confession of sin. Time when we come before God and ask that he forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness that we might come worthily to the Lord's table. That's what the Bible says, that we should come worthily to the Lord's table. Let's talk for a moment about what that means. 
One, it means that we come as born-again and baptized believers. If you're here as a guest and you're a born-again and baptized believer, we would invite your participation with us. We celebrate in communion, not only our communion as a local body, but the communion of the church universal, one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. There are two ordinances that we celebrate in our church. One is baptism, and it's in baptism that we celebrate saving grace. We celebrate what God has done. We symbolize in baptism what God has done in his saving grace. And the other is communion or the Lord's Supper, where we celebrate sustaining grace. You don't just need Jesus at the begin of, beginning of your journey. You need Jesus every moment of your life. As we sing sometimes, we need thee every hour. And that's precisely what we celebrate at the Lord's table. Our communion or fellowship with the Spirit, our fellowship with the church, and the provision of sustaining and sanctifying grace that Christ has made for us through the shedding of his blood and the breaking of his body. It also means to come to the table worthily also means that we come with sin confessed. We ought not to harbor sin in our heart. In other words, we cannot be committed to a pattern of sin in our life and come worthily to the table. In doing so would be dangerous. Nor can we harbor bitterness or hostility in our heart toward other brothers and sisters. Here again, we cannot harbor bitterness or hostility in our heart toward other brothers and come appropriately to the Lord's table. Now, you'll notice that we won't be walking around with a chart asking if you're harboring hostility in your heart. We won't be checking credentials to see that you've been baptized. But here's what I want you to know. The Scripture warns, and the Apostle Paul makes crystal clear, that many in the Corinthian church had neglected to attend to their soul before approaching the Lord's table, and in doing so had eaten and, drink, and drank judgment against themselves. He said many were sick, and some had even died. The responsibility is yours to sanctify your heart before the Lord as we approach the Lord's table, to see that we come worthily, remembering the sacrifice made that we might be forgiven, saved, and kept unto this hour. Join me in prayer. Father, thank you for your word, for its truth, and the presentation of the gospel we've been able to study together this morning. God, I pray, I pray, Lord, that you would stir among us. God, for those with unconfessed sin, Lord, that we would get before you in humility, make it right, we thank you for the promise that as we confess our sin, you are faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. I pray for those who don't know you, God, that you would stir in their heart, that you would grant the gift of faith, that they would believe and be born again. I pray, God, that you would arouse the church, Lord, that you would shake us from our slumber, that we might be sensitive to the movement of your Holy Spirit, that we might go as you direct, that we might come as you call. I pray that you would find us faithful and teachable, God, subjects of the King, waiting anxiously to hear a word of order. May Jesus receive all the praise. In Christ's name, amen.